please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, Jesus went to church. Jesus went to church. That's one way of summarizing our gospel lesson for today in Luke chapter 4. If we were to make a movie of this dramatic scene that Luke captures for us, set in this little backwater town called Nazareth, I suppose you could borrow the fitting title from that 1931 Warner Brothers talkie. It's so old, they were called talkies because there was talking in the movie. And its name was Local Boy Makes Good, starring the Buster Keaton contemporary, Joe E. Brown. Anybody ever heard of him? Some of you film books. There we go. In the end of that 1931 Hollywood film, the guy gets the girl. They both live happily ever after, of course, right? Here in Luke's historical account of the return of Jesus to his old stomping grounds of Nazareth, that film title would, however, only begin the story. This story doesn't end quite the same way, does it? So I'm going to completely different note in which it ends up. It seems in Jesus' old stomping ground, they really want to stomp him into the ground via a cliff at the edge of town. So I suppose if we wanted to sacrifice economy for accuracy, we could tweak that film title to Local Boy Makes Good initially, then things go quickly south. Now, it's not as catchy, I realize that, but it's probably more accurate. Well, what happens at that worship service to transform this homecoming crowd of dedicated churchgoers almost instantaneously into a lynch mob? What happens? Let's get a closer look at the interesting details inside the goings-on of this first-century Nazarene synagogue. First of all, to state the obvious, Jesus goes to worship on the Sabbath. Luke tells us in verse 16, as was his custom. So Jesus was a synagogue-going Jew. Now I hope just right off the bat there, that brings a little joy to your heart this morning, knowing that you are following in your master's footsteps by getting yourselves out of bed and getting here to worship on the Lord's day. I'm here to tell you as well, today you too hear your master's voice in church, for he speaks today through what he has already spoken in his word. And that's how we end each of our readings that Tom read for us today. We always end them with, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. It is so. Secondly, there's just something truly transcendent about this experience that we call church in the 21st century. Something that still bears an incredible resemblance to what Jesus experienced 2,000 years ago and something that he, way back then, would have been following himself per the traditions and practice, practices that were already in place for centuries, if not thousands of years, in his day. So truly, this is the church 
truly is a testament to the word of the Lord abiding forever. Luke says Jesus went into the synagogue and was given the scroll of the prophet to read, which he stood up to do just that. The reading of the prophets, which is called the Haftarah in Hebrew, began at the time of the return of the Jews from their exile in Babylon, the 70 years Babylonian captivity. Interestingly, our Old Testament lesson from Nehemiah today gives us a snapshot of just that time frame in the worship life of Judah. Only there in Nehemiah 8, we see not the Haftarah, the reading of the prophets, but rather the reading of the Torah, the reading of the law of Moses there with Nehemiah. And the reading of the Psalms then would round out the three types of readings that you would typically hear in an ancient worship service. So you have the law, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms. Just like we hear our three types of readings, don't we? We have the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospels each week. Now, on the basis of this snapshot, then, of ancient worship, everybody wants to say that the way they do worship today is most like God's ancient people. They want to claim that ground. I mean, we Lutherans, for example, we point to the people standing for the reading as we do every week for the gospel, right? When it's read aloud. Nehemiah 8, 5 says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. This also points, by the way, to the elevated pulpits for giving the sense of the text or the sermon which explains the text which comes into prominence at the time of the Reformation, those elevated pulpits in church architecture. But wait a minute, our Baptist friend says. Wait a minute, keep reading through verse 6, because this is really more like a Baptist service that we see here going on with Nehemiah and the children of Judah. It says, all the people there answered, Amen, Amen, like in a Baptist church, right? Everybody knows a Baptist is not afraid to throw in an extra amen at any point in the church service. But then there's still our charismatic friend who says, oh, no, no, you Lutherans, you Baptists, you're both wrong. It's clear that this scene in ancient Judah there with Nehemiah is definitely a charismatic style worship going on. If you just look more closely at verse 6, you'll see right there that it says they were all lifting their hands. Charismatics. Have you been to Charismatics? <laughs> I grew up going to those. So. Be all that as it may, the honest truth of the matter is most likely none of us would want to completely emulate that Nehemiah 8 ancient worship service there because the first three verses unmistakably record Ezra the priest who brought out the book of the law before the assembly, both men and women, and it says he read it for six hours. <laughs> From early morning to midday, do you really want to be like that? <laughs> uh, and then, if that's not enough, verse 4 says, and the ears of all the people were attentive for that full six hours to the book of the law. Attentive. I think it's safe to say that that's not happening in any of our <laughs> 21st century churches for that long a period. 
not with our teeny tiny little attention spans that we have these days. I mean, after 20 minutes, I'm ready to put myself asleep in the pulpit. (laughs) All kidding aside, this worship scene in Nehemiah had special circumstance and special significance in the life of Judah. And before we move on from it, it's worth a bit more discussion here because speaking of readings, this is the only, only one reading from the whole book of Nehemiah in our church's three-year lectionary cycle. So if we don't take this moment now, then when? Nehemiah doesn't even show up in our one-year lectionary cycle or in our holiday readings either. So then, that special circumstance for the Jews, as I alluded to earlier, was nothing less than their return to Jerusalem after 70 years' exile in Babylon. Now that's huge. This is a monumental moment in the life of Judah here in Nehemiah's day. No wonder why the people were weeping as they gathered in the square to hear the word of the Lord. Back again as they were in their own hometown of Jerusalem. Some had gone decades there in distant Babylon without worship. Some had never heard God's word read or preached ever. They didn't have apps like we have with our iPhones. They couldn't download the King James Version of the Bible on their iPad. Someone told me, technically, Moses, way back when, was the first person to have a tablet with the word downloaded onto it from the cloud. Of course, that'd be the cloud on Mount Sinai where God spoke to him. But those tablets went missing at the destruction of the temple there, the first temple, in 587 B.C., right before the Babylonians carted off Judah into exile. So many Jews were left simply without God's word at all, either to comfort or even to um, reprimand them. There in exile, Judah would come to resent those Babylonian gods they were being force-fed but it was primarily their idolatry, as well as many other transgressions, that brought down God's judgment upon them in the first place when they had the land, but they didn't live up to the land. And it's for this reason that Governor Nehemiah, after finally returning to Jerusalem, this is why he came down so very hard upon the newly returned Jews who had intermarried. In chapter 13 of the book that bears his name, Nehemiah scolded these intermarrying Jews, and he said, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? And it says Nehemiah confronted all those fellow Jews who had foreign spouses, and he cursed them and beat some of them and pulled their hair out. This is probably why we don't read a lot from Nehemiah's book (laughs) throughout the year. (laughs) Then Nehemiah, speaking in the first person, adds, And I made them all take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Whew. Do you think Nehemiah was serious about fleeing idolatry? I think so. Coming fresh off of the 70-year 
Babylonian captivity, and now finally, with the help of Ezra the scribe, reestablishing worship at Jerusalem's newly rebuilt temple, the second temple, um, Nehemiah and company were not at all ready to allow idolatry to just slip in nonchalantly into Jewish society again. And so it was at this time, too, that they introduced the new worship tradition of reading aloud in the assembly, not just the Torah, not just the Psalms, but now also they introduced reading the prophets, too. Those prophets whom God had sent to both Israel in the north and Judah in the south to warn them of the pending judgment if they didn't repent of their idolatry. God had warned his people not to intermarry, among other things, because with those wives or husbands come their gods. But they did not listen. Perhaps, thought Nehemiah and others, perhaps the people of God need to hear again the voice of those prophets with all their warnings and threats. And so now this tradition then of reading aloud the prophets too in the assembly finds its way to Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth where he is asked to read the prophet Isaiah. This is the Nehemiah-Nazareth subplot connection that comes together now and brings us back to the original storyline here. Jesus, the hometown boy who returns to only a momentary hero's welcome. Very fleeting. Jesus himself points out to these people gathered there in the synagogue that they indeed already have heard about the things that he did in Capernaum. What things? Amazing things. Things that everybody is talking about. Basically those things that Jesus reads straight out of Isaiah. As Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Of course, in chapter 3, Jesus is baptized and the Spirit comes down and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit right there. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So far, so good. No explosions. There were probably even a people, a couple of Baptist, Baptist folks in the back of the synagogue going, Amen, Amen. That's pretty much what I heard he was doing. What about you? What did you hear? As this tension was silently rising, though, and like Herod, the townspeople were hoping that they themselves might actually witness Jesus worked some of his magic and finally put their little town of Nazareth on the map. Now that, by the way, um, gives way to um, what Jesus does next. He reads the prophet Isaiah, gives the scroll back to the attendant, and sits down. There's one difference there that we don't do, um, a protocol difference between then and now. They stood to read and then sat to preach. It'd be if I pulled up a chair here and did the sermon that way. That's how Jesus preached. And that could simply be the reason why all the eyes of those in the synagogue were fixed on him 
because he was the last one to read the scroll. And now having taken a seat, it was customary for him to begin speaking. So they're just watching what he's going to say next. Possibly. But there might be something more to Luke's making a point of all that staring. Those good, perceptive students of the prophet Isaiah may have already noticed that, curiously, Jesus stopped his reading right in the middle of the verse from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, that he read, that he quoted. He stops and doesn't finish. The verse starts out, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but where he stops reading, it goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. Curiously, Jesus leaves off that last part. Why? Perhaps eyes were still fixed on Jesus, expecting him to finish the rest of that verse that he didn't finish, and that's why they were staring at him. Maybe some of them were muttering to themselves, and the day of vengeance of our God. Vengeance and the vengeance. Where's the vengeance of God? Where's the wrath of God? Of course, by the end of this gospel lesson, Luke provides us, he records for us uh, what we see there in verse 28. Plenty of wrath comes out there, but it's not God's wrath. Luke records... When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. When the synagogue members heard what things? When they heard Jesus give two examples of Gentiles being blessed by God, Elijah's widow from Sidon, and Naaman the Syrian leper. Both were blessed by God to the exclusion of the Jews in those stories, who they themselves miss out on the blessings of God. Ouch. Jesus, you're talking about Gentiles in our synagogue, the blessing that they're receiving? This is a very sensitive subject, to say the least. And now we really have a multi-layered explosion going off in this Nazarene synagogue. Gunpowder sprinkled over TNT, all doused with nitroglycerin. That will turn any homecoming into a lynching real fast. Let's take a look at that whole thing in slow motion because it all happens so quickly. If you start way back as we did with Nehemiah and the returned exiles, you recall the sentiment, yeah, let's not go through exile again, okay, people? How do you avoid it? Answer, stay away from Gentiles, especially the marrying kind. Nehemiah browbeats the Jews into swearing they will not allow any more intermarriage. Well, that certainly reinforces a command that God himself had given them. Perhaps they used a little too much force in getting that point across. So you fast forward now a few centuries, factor in a few more Greek, Roman, that is Gentile conquests of Israel, including some desecrations of their second temple now. And it's easy to see how in just a few centuries you have the situation. Jews, good in their eyes. Gentiles, bad. If there's going to be any day of vengeance now of our God, it will be to finally throw off the yoke of oppression throw off the captivity perpetrated by Gentiles like the Romans, 
against the Jews and the Jews at this point seeing themselves as behaving good lately and staying away from those dirty Gentiles. Like Jonah, hoping the Ninevites would not repent, there was a strong nationalistic sentiment on the part of these first century Jews to welcome the day of God's wrath against the Gentiles because that would mean liberation for the Jews. That would be, in their minds, a year of jubilee, a year of God's favor. When captives to Rome, for example, captives go free at last. So when Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, messianic fever practically breaks the thermometer. That would be an epiphany, the epiphany or the appearance that they're waiting for, the appearance of the Christ, the Christophany, that you and your Jewish ancestors have been dreaming about for generations. It's finally here. And for all that to happen in your own small, forgotten little backward town, Nazareth, let me tell you, it does not get any better than that, could it? Could it get any better? Jesus begs to differ. Jesus thinks it could get a lot bigger and better. Jesus has a lot more self-awareness when it comes to the Messiah's mission than that to which any single village could constrain him. And yes, his vision is inclusive of all who are spiritually blind and all who are captive to their own hunger for power and the compulsion to create conflict and to kill both Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus' vision is to liberate a world held captive to sin and held captive to the fear of death. And he will do this not by skirting our pain and suffering, but by willingly enduring the very wrath of God himself in our place. All of it he will take on himself. His vision is for a new earth that knows no drought, no famine, or widows, and to call out for himself a new people, sons and daughters from all nations, with all skin tones that never turn leprous or never age at all for that matter. His vision and the good news preached in his name today is for the endless year of the Lord's favor for you, for me. For some folks, that just might rock the boat. But for those who are poor in spirit, that good news rocks your world. Do a friend a favor. Share that good news with them. Amen. And now may he who began a good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.